Registry Matters is an independent production. The opinions and ideas here are that of the host and do not reflect the opinions of any other organization. If you have problems with these thoughts, FYP. Recording live from FYP Studios, East and West. Transmitting across the internet, this is episode 254 of Registry Matters. How are you people this evening? We are doing marvelous. It's 60 degrees, it's beautiful, and I'm looking forward to a four-hour recording tonight. Oh, four hours. Okay. Um, well, I will put it on extended play. Um, so, hey, uh, make sure that you go over there and do all those nifty things on the YouTube thing, pressing the like and the subscribe button and all that happy horse caca stuff. You know what I'm saying, Larry? And five-star reviews and comments and engagement and everything that feeds that algorithm so that we'll get more subscribers. The more you feed the algorithm, I'm learning, the more YouTube pushes us out to people who need it. It's up for, to you to help push it out. Four, four years into the programming, you're figuring out the algorithm. Good job. Well, I'm trying to explain it to people, even though you don't think it's worthy as your time, the like, the engagement, all that makes YouTube do things that help us, which is to feed this to more people who need the information. I'm not qualified to answer people's questions often, Larry. They'll they'll ask, hey, what about such and such and such and such state? I'm like, yes, that's a state. Well, that's a good answer. <laughs> do me a favor, sir, and would you give me a brief synopsis? 30-second version of what's going to go on tonight? The 32nd version. All right. We have a case from the Missouri Supreme Court that is significant. Also, we will touch on last week's uh, segment regarding chemical castration uh, proposal in New Mexico. And we have a bill in Iowa that merits our scrutiny because it would bring folks back into registration that have been removed. And we have one question from a person in federal prison who wants to know about travel outside the United States. And that oh. question is in Dropbox. Yes, 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 it is. I see that. And uh, so with, without further ado, sir, I will um, uh, take care of this case or this uh, question from the person. Uh, so this says, <clears throat> dear sir, I'm a level one PFR. That was edited by someone, Larry. I'm not saying who, but I'm saying it was edited by somebody. Um, the lowest and my offense was a federal crime. I'm in custody in Colorado. I am married to a Filipina citizen and have a house and a vehicle in the Philippines. At the end of my supervised release in five years, I want to relocate and reside in the Philippines with my wife for the rest of my natural life. I am now almost 70 years old. Larry, there's not much time left. I do not want to renounce my citizenship as my income depends on social security and uh, military pension. Is there any issue that you are aware of? Uh, the, that will preclude my leaving the U S I had heard a rumor that it was difficult to leave the country, even though you are a free citizen. Conversely, is there any reason that I cannot bring my spouse to the U S and have my family immigrate, uh, even with complying with the PFR requirements? Thank you for your time and trouble. Please do not use my name. Thanks. <clears throat> um, I bleeped that out, Larry. So already, well, what we what we've done is we've answered what we can. I sent him a letter, or I'm actually sending him a letter because that was submitted to Narsal. But uh, in terms of the part one, I feel comfortable 
very comfortable answering that part too. I don't feel as comfortable about sponsoring from immigration. But in terms of part one, you will have absolutely no problem leaving the United States. You can leave the United States anytime you want to. There is no restrictions once you're off supervision. There is a requirement that you provide 21 days advance notice. And it's a federal requirement that, although it's federal, if your state hasn't put it into your registration scheme, you really don't have anyone to file that report with. So if you run into some problems because it's a federal requirement and people are just paranoid that they're going to be prosecuted. I've never heard of a prosecution where the person state didn't require it to be provided. There was no place to, to actually to, to go lit, make the listing and make the report that you're traveling. But anyway, let's assume that your state, wherever you're going to be, requires that. You'll, you'll file your 21 days advance notice as required by federal law with your local registration. They will transmit it to the U.S. Marshals, who will then in turn transmit it uh, internationally to Interpol. And Interpol will make sure the destination country has it. Well, there's where you run into the problem. The destination country, having received that notice, will, in many instances, when you arrive, they will tell you, sorry, we're not admitting you into our country, which is their prerogative. And then you'll be facing a very expensive return flight to the United States. And that is what what's going to happen. Now, keep in mind that the process is reciprocal and that the United States receives such notices from other nations that leads to a denial of admissions into our country. This is not just a one-way flow. Now, the United States has more notices, I would imagine, because of the size of our country and the complexity of our criminal reporting and record keeping. I suspect that we're sending more notices than we're receiving. But we're receiving notices as well from nations who have people on various ter terrorist watch lists, you know, concerns that people that are concerned about, and they share that information internationally. And the United States turns down their admission when they arrive here, and they're told to do the same thing. They're told to fly back to where they originated from because they're not being admitted. So that would be my suggestion is that you may not get in even though you're free to travel, but they will let you fly off or sail away. You won't have any problem. You just may not be admitted. So that's part one. Yep. Any questions? Uh, no, I don't have questions on. I'm pretty sure I agree with you that they are going to, they're not going to stop you from leaving. Uh the only scenario I can imagine where they would stop you from leaving would be if you were under supervision and somehow or another they picked up on that in the airport screening process, they might would stop you. Or if they could pick up on the, the fact that you hadn't filed the requisite notice, they might would stop you and try to prosecute you for that. But as far as I've heard, that's not been generally a problem. The problem is once you get to the destination, therein lies the problem because they choose not to admit you based upon the notice. So it's an effect, very expensive uh, trip that accomplishes very little because you're turned back. Uh, in terms of the sponsorship, I am not an expert on that. I know so little about it. I know that we at NARSOL, we're looking at the issue and we're looking at the potential for maybe some litigation in terms of that because it seems to lack due process, but there is some some sort of process by which you can make your case that you should not have that you should not be prohibited from 
bringing your spouse in and there's an administrative review and then from that point on if you're denied that then there's judicial actions that can be taken but i'm just too lack lacking in knowledge to be able to give you much in, in that regard but i do note that i understand why you wouldn't want to give up your social security and your retirement if you're 70 years old you'll be 75 years old by the time you get off uh, uh supervised release it's probably not the best point of your life to start a new career so the income that you have gotten is going to be the bulk of how you would survive so you would not want to renounce your citizenship but beyond that i never ever recommend anyone renounce United States citizenship. Uh, United States citizenship is a very valuable thing, and I would never tell someone to disown this country. Let me uh, uh, just dive in here for just a second. There is a website called registranttag, registranttag.org, and this is all anecdotal. This is all whoever's experience this is. This isn't somebody going out and trying to find what the laws say, calling offices, these are people that went and this is the experience that they had. And uh, on there, you click on the travel matrix and go down to Asia, Philippines. And the first column is SOs, PFRs, turned away. And the Philippines says yes. Now, I can't vouch for it. I'm only pointing to a resource that says you may have problems. That's all I really want to point out by this. So, well... That is a good resource. It'll be very limited in terms of his particular situation for accessibility, being that he's in the federal prison up in uh, uh, Colorado, but uh, one of the federal prisons in Colorado, but he, he will not have that access. But maybe perhaps someone can do some research for him. Yep, 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 yep. And uh, continue on then with uh, the rest of that? I think we're done with that question. Okay, well, I just, I, I, I believe there is a problem bringing in a spouse as a PFR. And I heard, I think you said that you didn't feel qualified answering it, but I'm pretty sure that there are other people that have a lot of problems bringing in a spouse from another country that is a PFR. And Brenda in chat says, yes, there definitely is. I'm not trying to answer it legally or anything like that, but if he's trying to bring that person in as a PFR, you may have a lot of challenges. Yes. That, that I did say we we're looking oh, at okay. our, so we're looking at litigation in the area the person that approached us is still administrative review and that it's not ripe for for litigation until you have to exhaust the administrative process but there is a process by which you can ask for a waiver there is a provision apparently that puts some prohibitions on that and i don't think that uh, that being the sponsorship there is a provision that limits that but i don't see that there's much due process afforded to those people and that's what's troubling about it. I'm not going to ever argue that something can't be done because with proper due process, a lot of things can be done. Remember the Constitution says you can't be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process. So if you logically interpret that, that means you can be deprived of all of those things with due process. Right? If you can't be deprived of it without, that means that de facto with due process you can be. You can be deprived of your life your liberty, your freedom, and your property. Well, I would argue, if I were the government, that we can deprive you of the of the privilege of sponsoring someone to come into this country with proper, robust due process. I don't think that's being provided. Yeah, and, and to go the other direction, the, the death penalty stuff, you did have due process 
So that that's the life part of the life, liberty, and property, and you did get due process. That is correct, and you can have your life taken after the due process is complete. Exactly. Well, then let's move along, I suppose, shall we? Let's do it. Where are we going next? We are going to circle back to the legislation stuff that we talked about last week with that pending uh, castration issue that came up in New Mexico. It was, I believe it was House Bill 128, and there was scheduling something or another that following Monday after we recorded last week, so just this past Monday, and there was a hearing with Health and Human Services Committee. Do you uh, recall how that went? Uh, Well, the bill was not heard. Oh, wait, say that again? Uh, The bill was not heard. Is that, tell me, so is that good or bad that it was not heard? Uh, Well, when you're running a stalling campaign, strategy of dragging things out, this is a marvelous result that it wasn't heard. It wasn't heard Monday. The committee met Wednesday. It wasn't heard Wednesday. The committee met Friday, and it wasn't heard Friday. Okay. Um, And so what is the publicly stated reason that they, uh, that, so, um, representative, so what, what was the reason that it wasn't heard? Tell me why. Well, the, the, uh, on Monday, the publicly stated reason was that the sponsor, one of the sponsors, rep- representative Stephanie Lord, she was not feeling well on Monday morning. And that was uh, what was stated publicly. Okay. And any, any other reasons, maybe like, uh, black ops reasons or something? Uh, well, I'm not certain of all that was going on but the fiscal impact report was posted made available publicly on monday and then i sent a comprehensive letter that uh, was reviewed i know for a fact because i have personal relationships with members on the committee it was reviewed by the committee and by the chair and by the committee analyst and amazingly the the bill now appears to have lost its momentum <laughs> and uh hang, hang on hang on i have something for you to play um this you're not prepared for this but what are you trying to do larry trying to win the game. i'm trying so what are you trying to do trying to win the game. oh okay you're just trying to win the game i see so it doesn't matter whether you push shove tackle whatever you're just trying to win the game that is correct oh wrong button that's what we're trying to do here we're trying to win the game all right. Uh, let's see here. So it's, it, is there anything else that could happen after all that? Well, you missed the next question about gobbledygook. I, I was getting there, Larry, if you would oh, just okay. relax. Okay. I, okay. I, okay. So I, so you did send me something and I read all that gobbledygook and it went on and on, but I didn't see any reference to recidivism. Oh, okay. So no recidivism. And uh, so why no recidivism was listed? Oh, well, it was three pages, but I didn't see the need. As I stated last week, it's not a very effective argument. So therefore, I did not raise that argument in my three pages of gobbledygook, as you called it. I see. And are you still pretty confident that the bill will not re whatever resurface itself on this session? So will the bill not pass this go around? Uh, this bill will not pass uh, in, in New Mexico. I, I can almost... I can't guarantee it because nothing in life is guaranteed other than death, but I can tell you with emphatic confidence that this bill will not pass in our legislature. Yes. And I will try to do this, but a, uh, a very dedicated listener of ours sent me some peer-reviewed uh, empirical evidence stuff about the damage that the chemical castration stuff does. And this person was even like going to voluntarily take it to help him in his situation, but he saw all the medical 
downside of it and uh, opted out and said, you know what? Maybe this isn't really going to be all that it's cracked up to be. <laughs> um, so I will try to add that to last week's show notes so that people can have access to those PDFs that were sent. And thank you very much to that individual that sent them. So uh, do you want to cover this little uh, clip that you provided me, Larry? Sure. But before we go to that, I did uh, I did have, as the gobbledygook you termed, I had several sections of key points in there, which it would take too long to go through them all. But I did not have anything about the downside medical of the procedure itself of the of the medication of the ingestion of medication now, i did put in there about how the conservatives claim that they are so much against the government forcing you to put stuff in your body against your will and how that they've magically done a flip-flop that was actually in there in the gobbledygook but i didn't put okay. anything in there because i didn't feel qualified to talk about that but if the bill does uh, gain traction i will be happy to to add that to the list of things, but I will never argue recidivism because it's futile to do that. But, so yeah, we can go on. <laughs> uh, do you want to set it up or you just want me to like dive right into it? So uh, the clip that we're going to play is from a Senator, a U.S. Senator from Louisiana and uh, the conservative talk show circuits have had a lot of fun with it over the last several days uh, because a judge before the Senate for confirmation was being questioned and this was a question that he was posing that caused the uh, the uproar about how stupid this judge was. And I just want you people to listen to this and see what you think. And then it does fit into the program tonight. We're gonna we're gonna double back on it as we go through this case that we're talking about. Very good. So here's this little clip. It's a uh, it's short, 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 short. You know, if it would start from it's the beginning, to me, I'm curious if you guys. Oh my more... God! I'm pressing all the wrong buttons, Larry. Do you know what purposivism is? Um, in my 12 years as an assistant attorney general huh? and my nine years serving as a judge, I was not faced with that precise question. Okay. So, so what, was, what was the word? Could you play just the first part of it again where he poses the question? Because I wasn't clear on what he said. So play that again. Do you know what purposivism is? Purposivism? Is that what he said? That's what it sounds like. But I think I know what he's trying to say, Larry, but he is missing that word very, very badly. Okay. I wish the conservatives had been just a little bit fairer when they played this and they had so much fun with it. Had he said purposivism, then it's possible she might have known what he was talking about but he didn't say that <laughs> i should i should have queued up i uh, i have that scalia clip where the guy asks him about the purpose of his own ah i keep damn it i keep hitting that wrong button i should i should play that whole thing out just so i can get out of my system but yeah so he's they're asking her about purpose of ism right right and she doesn't understand his southern drawl about <laughs> Proposivism or whatever the hell he's come on man he is totally botching the word he doesn't know what the word is he's not mispronounce i mean he's mispronouncing it he's not accenting it well, in my well, opinion uh, so uh yeah well he was provided those questions by his staff and and he probably didn't 
uh, go through any rehearsal before he did the questions. That's the way it worked. And, and that's what he looked at it and he was trying to do it on the fly. And that's what he came up with. But but yes. anyway, it fits in. It fits in with this Missouri Supreme Court case. And we're going to have a little bit of fun with it as we go through this case. All right, then. So this would be the Missouri Supreme Court case. You people, that would be you people, put this case in from the Missouri Supreme Court, and it's Brock Smith versus St. Louis County Police et al. I noticed that it triggered a visceral response from a particular guy, Hamilton Smith, and I've read the case twice, Larry, and now I'm curious why you, uh, what your overall reaction is. Why did GHS react so negatively the case is very difficult to comprehend i can say that to the least uh well i'm guessing because the state supreme court ruled against brock smith and gary nelson ford and you know when a case is lost that some of our advocates assume that the court goofed because if you just use a little bit of common sense you can figure out that this stuff is wrong so i would suspect that's part of of his reaction because He's assuming the court goofed. And as we get through this, we may come up with a different conclusion. I thought Missouri changed their law several years ago and went to a tiered system, which permits those on the registry to petition for removal. You're correct. They did. And that in of itself is a big part of the problem in this situation. Under federal law, there's no need for a formal petition process to even exist. The registrant can simply time out once he or she has registered the required number of years for that tier designation. When this process is devised to include an adversarial process mandating the filing of petition, you're destined to have issues. And that's what occurred here. Both men filed removal petitions, the state of Missouri responded with objections, and the state has now won. The sad thing is that bad case law has been created which will be virtually impossible to overcome do you mind if we dig into that a little bit more sure that's what we got four hours set aside for today. so let's, <laughs> let's dig in all right so as you've already uh alluded this decision was the result of removal petitions by two different pfrs brock smith appealed to st louis county circuit court's judgment denying his position uh, petition for removal from the missouri pfr registry smith argued that he is a Tier 1 PFR, Missouri Law Section 589.400.1, subsection 71, I don't know all those numbers, does not mandate he remain on the registry for life. And then Gary Nelson Ford appealed a St. Louis County Circuit Court's denial of his petition for removal from the Missouri PFR registry. He argued, then Ford argued, the circuit court misstated and misapplied the law in concluding he must remain on the Missouri registry for life. And how did I do in that assessment there, sir? You did fine. So you just keep on going because I don't need uh, to say a thing. Okay. It started on January 20th in 2021 when Smith filed a petition for removal from the registry. Smith alleged that he is a tier one BFR and is entitled to be removed from the registry because he satisfied all registration requirements and more than 10 years had passed since he was required to register. What did the state say uh, to reply to his request? Well, the state denied his allegations, Smith's, that is, allegations, and requested his petition be dismissed. At a hearing on the petition, the state's sole objection was that, pursuant to Missouri law section, we'll just call it the Missouri law section going forward, Smith 
was not permitted to have his name removed from the PFR registry. They stated it is because he is required to register under separate requirements of the Federal Sex Offender Registration and Notification Act codified as 34 United States Code 20901, known as SORNA, going forward. The circuit court concluded that Missouri SORA, the Sex Offender Registration Act, specifically Section 589, blah, 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 requires lifetime registration for anyone who has ever had to register in Missouri for an offense that required registration under federal SORNA. And that's where it starts getting complicated. Yeah, because you're you're already confusing me. So did I hear what you said correctly, that Missouri law requires lifetime registration for anyone who has ever had to register in Missouri for an offense that required lifetime registration under federal SORNA? I think so. That's what I cut and pasted from the court's opinion, but I found this a little bit confusing as well. All right. So then looking further, I noted that Smith appealed and that the Court of Appeals reversed and ruled in his favor. I'm guessing that Missouri appealed? Uh, uh, they did indeed. Okay, so then let's deal. Uh, move on to Ford. And the decision states that Ford's conviction renders him a Tier 1 PFR subject to a 15-year registration period. Ford was required to register, and he had been registered in Missouri since 2004. And let's see, Ford, that would be 2019. Uh, in December 2018, Ford filed a petition for removal from the PFR registry. Ford alleged that as a tier one, he is eligible for removal. And the Missouri State Highway Patrol and other defendants argued solely that pursuant to subsection 589.400.1 and then seven in parentheses, asserted that Ford was not entitled to have his name removed from the PFR registry because of a separate obligation to register under federal SORNA. Hey, Larry, there's not a federal SORNA, right? <laughs> so, okay. Yeah. Um, and then Ford did not dispute that he'd previously been required to register under SORNA, and the circuit court denied Ford's petition for removal. Ford appealed, and then the Court of Appeals reversed. Your turn. The ball's in your court. What happened next? Well, the Missouri Supreme Court granted the state's request for transfer of the case and decided to reverse the Court of Appeals. And can we then dig into the reasons why the state Supreme Court reversed? Sure. Okay, I'll begin by reading from page four. When reviewing a court-tried case, the court will affirm the circuit court's judgment unless there is no substantial evidence to support it, and it is against the weight of the evidence, or it erroneously declares or applies the law citing Murphy versus Karen, I guess? It could be Sharon. What does this mean in terms of deference to a trial court? It means the trial judge decision will not be overturned except extreme rare situations because it's a very high hurdle that they have there in Missouri in terms of deference and read that very carefully folks that what the standard is there's extreme deference except for a few factors that Andy just cited therefore you're starting on an uphill climb they went on and stated the court's primary rule of statutory interpretation is to give effect to legislative intent as reflected in the plain language of the statute at issue. If the intent of the legislature is clear and unambiguous by giving the language used in the statute its plain and ordinary meaning, then this court is bound by that intent and cannot resort to any statutory construction in interpreting the statute. This sounds like black letter interpretation, doesn't it, Larry? 
It does. Yes, it does. Uh, they stated that courts look elsewhere for interpretation only when the meaning is ambiguous or would lead to an illogical result defeating the purpose of the legislature. And they cited Spradlin versus City of Fulton, which is a 1998 case from Missouri Supreme Court. To move along on page five, it states, a court must presume that the legislature acted with a full awareness and complete knowledge of the present state of the law. Accordingly, when the legislature amends a statute, we presume the legislature intended to change the existing law. In determining legislative intent, no portion of a statute is read in isolation, but rather is read in context to the entire statute, harmonizing all provisions. Harmonizing. I remember that you people have used that phrase when we were discussing whether or not North Carolina had jurisdiction over the person who was incarcerated in Fort Leavenworth at the Joint Regional Conviction Facility. So you didn't just pull that out of your um, <clears throat> tuchus. I did not. Statutes are to be read in harmony rather than reading an isolated provision standing alone, which is what too many people do. The, the court stated where a statute is amended only in part or as respects only certain isolated and integral sections thereof and the remaining sections or parts of the statute are allowed to left allowed and left to stand unamended unchanged and apparently unaffected by the amendment act or acts it is presumed that the legislature intended the amended and unchanged sections or parts of the original statute to remain operative and effective as before enactment meaning that the legislature knew what it was doing and they deliberately left that language. They had that there for a reason. That's what they're saying regarding the mandatory act. So just so we can clarify this for all the, the lay people like me, if we can dig into this, the consolidation of uh, the issue of this consolidation appeal, consolidated appeal, because the state did not, excuse me, the state did change the law, as I mentioned earlier. And in 2018, the Missouri General Assembly amended Missouri Sora. It added a list of crimes exempt from registration. It divided PFRs into three tiers based on the severity of the offense. Tier one offenders must be registered for 15 years, tier two for 25 years, and tier three offenders ah, for all of their time being on the planet. Also, it added subsection 589.400.10, which provides any person currently on the registry for having been adjudicated for a tier one or tier two offense or adjudicated delinquent for a tier three offense or other comparable offenses listed may file a petition for removal from the registry. It added subsection 589.401, which contains requirements according to the tier system that an offender must meet, uh, meet to petition to have their name removed from the Missouri registry. This should have been a good thing. So tell me, sir, what went wrong? I'm not totally sure, but it appears that an overzealous law enforcement apparatus is one problem and sloppy drafting of legislation is another part of the problem. It appears to be but, a twofold problem. But did, didn't the, the court say that it was unambiguous? Uh, yes, they're saying it's unambiguous, but not the way you're hoping that they said it. They're saying, that, <laughs> they're saying it's unambiguous that, that the state is doing the correct thing. And we'll get more to that later. But, the, but again, folks, when we talk about reducing funding to the police and law enforcement apparatus, if Missouri didn't have unlimited funding, they would not be able to fight all these petitions. If Missouri had not put a petition process in, we wouldn't be in this predicament right now. They should just have allowed these people to time out. But no one listens to me. But okay, keep going. 
All right. On page eight of the majority opinion, it states before the 2018 amendments to Missouri SORA, Missouri courts consistently held that pursuant to the previous things that we've been talking about, 589-400-1.7, whatever that is, sex offenders are required to register in Missouri for their lifetimes if they previously were required to register as PFRs pursuant to SORNA. You know, I just try, I'm trying to enunciate that as clearly as I can. So it's SORA and SORNA. Um, and that one is the, uh, the federal SORNA. Even if they are not presently required to register under SORNA. Do you remember that decision? I vaguely do. In fact, the Missouri Supreme Court had previously held that registration violated the ex post facto clause. They then reversed themselves after the enactment of the Adam Walsh Act. I think it was around 2009 after the Walsh Act was enacted in 2006, which created the federal SORNA, and they reversed themselves. So, uh, But before that, the Supreme Court of Missouri had said that they could not impose these obligations on people ex post facto, but then they reversed themselves. <laughs> and then further on down in on page eight, they stated SORNA imposes an independent obligation requiring respondents to register as PFRs in Missouri. Missouri SORA registration requirements apply to any person who has been required to register as a PFR pursuant to federal law, even if the offender presently is not required to register pursuant to SORNA. God, this is like so much double speak and back around and twisted. Uh, the offender has been required to register as a PFR and therefore is required to register pursuant to Missouri SORA. Um, now, that's BS or funny, or as you would say, I think, Larry. Is that funny? Uh, yes. Well, no, it isn't really funny, <laughs> but but it's uh, sad the way I use the, the term funny because it appears to be that they're saying since you were once required to register, you almost, you have to require, you have to register forever. But this is a very convoluted outcome. They really worked hard to get to this outcome. Um, if we move along to page nine, they stated because the language of five, eight, nine, four hundred one seven is clear. It is improper for this court to look beyond the plain language of the statute and to construe 589-417, contrary to both the plain language and this court's previous construction of the same statutory provision. The registration requirements pursuant to 589-417, I, I should just come up with an acronym for it, that uh, subsection, continues even after the individual's federal oblig uh, registration obligation pursuant to SORNA has expired because the state registration requirements is based on the person's present status as a PFR who has been required to register pursuant to SORNA. That's got to be pretty much the most absurd thing I've ever heard in my life. Oh, really? I thought you believed in judicial restraint and that the court should only interpret the law. In fact, we just played the clip about purposivism at the beginning of the program. The court stated the General Assembly was well aware of this court's interpretation of 589-417 at the time of the 2018 amendments and chose to leave the language regarding federal registration unchanged, leaving that obligation there. Although Missouri courts have stated this result does not seem to comport with legislative intent, when the plain language of the statute is clear, this court will not look beyond it. So if you really believe in your judicial restraint and you're so proud of it, then you would say that this court did exactly what it should have done. Well, I got to say, Larry, you, uh, you are impossible. Can't you admit that someone somewhere goofed? 
Well, I'd certainly disagree with the outcome. Someone did goof. The legislative drafting wasn't good. We didn't have someone like my senator who looks at all these things and, and didn't have someone like me looking at it. We had the advocates over Missouri thinking about what a great thing it was. People are going to get off the PFR list. And I remember sounding the alarm bell at the time. Not so fast here, just like it did in California. Not so fast here, folks. Don't assume that this is going to work marvelously. I did not pick up on this particular thing. Someone did goof. But the point I'm making now in terms of the purpose of ism, all of a sudden we have people wanting the court to interpret what they perceive to be the purpose of this, which was to give people a way out. And there's, they're forgetting that they have always professed that they believe in the letter of the law. The letter of the law is just what the Supreme Court said was there. That provision was not removed. That provision that if you had a federal obligation at one time, you would have to, I mean, go back and fix it. You have a legislative process. Go back and fix it. Uh, but I do I do disagree with the outcome. But I, I see and understand that their philosophy of judicial restraint is this is not our job to fix this. So then to move right along then, sir, on page 10, they stated, there are reasons the General Assembly would want to keep the language of 589-417 and its interpretation the same. SORNA requires every state shall maintain a jurisdiction-wide PFR registry conforming to the requirements of this subchapter. 34 U.S. Code subsection 20912A, certain federal funds are linked to Missouri's substantial compliance with SORNA. And they also noted for any fiscal year, after the end of the implementation period, which was a three-year period of time, a jurisdiction that fails as determined by the U.S. Attorney General to substantially implement this subchapter shall not receive 10% of the funds that would otherwise be allocated for the fiscal year to the jurisdiction under subpart 1E of the Omnibus Crime Control and Safe Streets Act of 1968. And uh, everybody wants that federal funding from the government that they claim is too big and should be smaller. I just don't understand it. <laughs> um, yeah. So I, isn't that a common thing as people, they like, we need to like, I mean, that's the whole thing with the debt ceiling going on right now. It's like, we need to constrain federal spending, cut it by, I heard an economist layer, like it would be, I think a 15% across the board cut to start getting closer to things. And you couldn't just cut everything right now, but everyone wants their funding except for when we need to make the cuts, but no one wants to cut it. Right. Well, I've done that arithmetic myself, and we're digressing, but it's somewhere between 15 and 20%. Our revenue stream is short of our of our uh, fiscal needs of, of what we're spending. But that really masks the problem because almost 70% of what the federal government spending expends is on automatic pilot, meaning it's not voted upon. So then yep. you reduce the, the amount that's, that's actually a discretionary accounts that is national defense and the things that, that do get voted on. So trying to cut 20% of the overall federal budget from 20, from a 30% slice of the federal budget, you can see that you would basically wipe out two-thirds of discretionary spending, which would totally eliminate the Department of Defense and so many things that are critical for – I mean, it's, it's not practical to do that. But anyway, back to this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, I was going to have a, somebody kick that soapbox out from underneath you. It's an example of the hypocrisy of all of us. Missouri tends to lean conservative now, and they are – proud of their conservatism. Well, if that be the case, and if you believe the government should be smaller, then this is a way for you to make it smaller. 
don't worry about that 10% of those federal grants. Don't even worry about the whole 90%. Don't worry about any of it. Take care of your own criminal justice system. Don't have your paw up to the federal government. So before we get out of this, the court also stated, this is something that I got on page 11. Even more significantly, had the General Assembly not intended for 589.400.17 to continue to be construed in this manner, this court has consistently construed it. The General Assembly could have amended the provision in 2018 along with other substantive changes to Missouri SORA because that number again is not ambiguous. The court must apply that number again according to its plain language. And would you please tell me what will happen to this whole thing next? Uh, unfortunately, I think there's nothing more to do unless the Missouri legislature has the courage to come back and say that we goofed. This was, we need a cleaned up piece of legislation. And this is why you'd have to frame it. And I'll help you people, Missouri, if you'll reach out to me. You don't fl- frame this as a change of existing law. This is, this is cleanup. If you, if you frame it as we're going to let people off the PFR list, all hell will break loose. But you say the 2018 legislative action needs some cleanup that it was made apparent to us by the recent Supreme Court ruling. And we're merely cleaning up that language that we goofed on in 2018. I'll promise you this. If you can get the Republicans and the conservatives to buy into that, if there's any opposition from the Democrat Party, I will travel to Missouri on my dime and I will lobby the halls of the Capitol to try to extinguish any Democrat Party opposition that should should surface. Um, and I know that I have heard on every politics podcast I've ever listened to that they will definitely go in there and they will admit that they goofed and that they need to fix something. So do you think that Missouri would do that? Uh not likely, but it does happen. It really does. Uh, we, we deal with cleanup legislation all the time. When you're running as many bills as they're running, as quickly as, as the system works, you're bound to have some oversights and stuff that needs to be cleaned up in subsequent sessions. This is one of them. It could be done. And I think I think that you would need to actually get leadership on board because leadership is going to be able to make it happen and they can do the spin so you would need to be, have some connection for leadership in the Missouri Assembly. But yes, it could be done. Are you a first-time listener of Registry Matters? Well, then make us a part of your daily routine and subscribe today. Just search for Registry Matters through your favorite podcast app. Hit the subscribe button and you're off to the races. You can now enjoy hours of sarcasm and snark from Andy and Larry on a weekly basis. Oh, and there's some excellent information thrown in there, too. Subscribing also encourages others of you people to get on the bandwagon and become regular Registry Matters listeners. So what are you waiting for? Subscribe to Registry Matters right now. Help us keep fighting and continue to say F-Y-P. Uh, shall we move over to Iowa? Iowa, what the heck is happening over there other Pro- than corn, corn stalks? I, I'm thinking there's like 12 people that live in Iowa, so I, they can't have a very big registry over there. But, so, oh man, I just messed up a screen. Hold on one second so I can get my screen back. Um, so here we are with a little uh, Iowa thing. Um, can, can you tell me what is HF? So I understand HB would be a House bill and then Senate bill. What is an HF? 
I'm presuming it just means house file 77. Uh, okay. Uh, so tell me what this, this shenanigans is in Iowa. It's the, it's the title, an act modifying the sex offender registry requirements by requiring sex offenders whose registration requirements have expired to re-register and making penalties applicable. That's the title of the legislation, House File 77. This then applies to people who no longer have to register? Like, would that be me, for example? Uh, correct. This proposal would reimpose registration on those who have termed out or otherwise been released. That's so 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 the reason why you continue fighting after you've been released from the registry is because somebody could propose this kind of thing that would drag you back in, eh? You're correct. <laughs> on page uh, on, uh, on page one, line five, there is a new category of tier four offender created by this bill. And tell me what does tier four what is a tier four PFR? Uh, tier four offense offender includes a conviction for any sex offense that required a PFR to register in this state of Iowa under or under another jurisdiction's PFR registry, but such registration requirements have ex- since expired. And I mean, literally, so I got off the registry in Georgia and I could then go meander my way and set up camp in Iowa and they would say something like, oh, oh, oh you had to register before there. You got to register now? Uh, what they could already have done that under the previous law. This is really oh. trying to keep the people from getting off the, who've gotten off the registry uh, to make sure that they still have a registration obligation. They're really focusing this on internal rather than external because they can already they can already rope you back in if you come to Iowa because Georgia's re- removal is not binding on Iowa. Okay. Oh, yeah, I understand. Okay. And do you think that this proposal will be defeated? Uh, well, it can be. Uh, it. it, it it certainly could be defeated uh, with the proper strategy. Oh, oh okay. So, you, and you are Mr. Strategy. And what would be the best strategy? And what do you think is driving this legislation? Well, uh, I would have to do a lot more study to come up with the best overall strategy. I can unequivocally tell you that focusing on recidivism is not the best strategy, folks. Let go of it. We can easily conclude that looking at the plain facts, the people to whom this would apply have already timed out, and thus they have not committed a subsequent sexual offense, meaning there has been no recidivism. If they had, they would not have been released from the registration because most states already require lifetime registration for recidivist offenders. So put your recidivism argument away and let's come up with some new strategy. Uh, I noticed that it states a person who has been convicted of any kind of PFR offense classified as a tier four offense shall register as provided in section 692 alpha 104 alpha. If the offender resides in this state based on the plain language, Larry, we talked about plain language in the last one. It does not appear to apply to all the other situations that can trigger a duty to register, such as attending school or becoming employed in Iowa. Uh, I noticed that as well. My hunch is that they're simply trying to keep the requirements benign for now to avoid any constitutional issues and those people like me that would start throwing around the ex post facto clause. That's my hunch that they're being very, very crafty and cagey about how they're doing this. (laughs) Um, A PFR classified as tier four offender within 30 days of being required to register under 
section 692A.103, to, to appear in person to register with the sheriff of the county where the principal residence of the offender is maintained. The PFR is only required to provide the sheriff with the following relevant information. That's name, date of birth, principal residence, and a photo. Yeah, this is a very lean list of requirements that would apply to this new Tier 4 offender designation. If this uh, if this should pass, um, I tell don't me do, do you really... think do you do you think that it, do you think that it would pass? Do you think do you expect uh, it to remain this lenient? <laughs> no, I do not expect it to remain this lenient. I would not expect the law enforcement apparatus and the victim advocates to be satisfied with such a benign list of requirements, not at all. I think this is a way to get your foot in the door and you present this as being kind of like, this is good, this is just very, very easy requirements, nothing to it. And I think that it wouldn't be long, there would be amendments proposed. Uh, the bill also states a tier four offender is not required to verify, really? You don't have to verify any relevant information as required by the stuff that we just talked about. This is a very limited set of requirements for sure. Would uh, Do you think a tier four person would be listed on the interwebs? Uh, great question. And as the proposal currently stands, the answer is no. The bill states on lines 11 through 14, I forgot what page I was on, but the general public through the PFR registry internet, internet site, except the general public shall not have access to tier four offender relevant information through the internet site. Unfortunately, it has a bad provision as well. Further down, it states a member of the public may contact the county sheriff's office to request relevant information from the registry regarding a specific PFR, including relevant information relating to a tier four. So it means they would have to know that you existed. And so what they would do, how this would come back to bite you on the you know what, was is when you disappeared because you timed out. And if someone were looking for you, they would just contact the sheriff's department and say do you have this person registered on the private list and then all hell would break loose because they'd say why will you remember the right to know thing the right to know thing will will surface itself and all of a sudden you'll have a big brouhaha about the uh, alleged right to know this this won't stand with it being private but as it's currently drafted it would not be available online uh, the bill states a tier four offender who violates the bill commits an aggravated misdemeanor for a first offense and a class D felony for any sex second or subsequent uh, offense. That kind of sort of sounds lenient as well. I don't know personally. I mean, a misdemeanor, I think we sort of have a rough idea of, but then I don't know what class D felony would mean. It's, it was, it's probably the lowest level felony in Iowa and our state. It's a, it's, it's a fourth degree and it carries up to 18 months. And then with good time, you would serve no more than nine months, assuming you didn't forfeit your good time. Uh, we're on the low side of Class D felony in Iowa, may carry more time, but it's still a relatively benign requirement. Uh, there's very few misdemeanor registry violations anywhere anymore. So this is, starts out with only a misdemeanor. So it, it uh, but it's still, it still puts the person in danger of prosecution. And that's an incarceration. And one of the scariest aspects of the proposal is near the end, it states that depending on the nature of the offense committed, a tier four offender 
may be subject to exclusion zones and prohibition of certain employment-related activities under Code Section 692A113, residency and childcare restrictions under Code 692A114, and restricted employment uh, where dependent adults reside under Code Section 692A.115. This bill still imposes disabilities and restraints, which makes it vulnerable to a constitutional attack. And we need to get, uh, there's a question in chat, Larry, before we get out of this, um, a person says, so Iowa is basically making all PFRs to be on for life. Why don't they just pass a law saying that? Because they want to make it explicitly, maybe they want to make it explicitly retroactive. That is, that is correct. They probably have been advised by all the victories we've rolled up on ex post facto stuff that reimposing a registration obligation would run into constitutional problems. But as I've said all along, you could actually have a registry that would not run afoul of any constitutional provisions if you made it benign enough. So it may be that that's what they're trying to do. But see, it won't stay that way. It will not stay that way. I promise you, the law enforcement apparatus, the victim's advocates, they will not allow it to stay that way. They will not allow it to be private. They will not allow you to not be required to update information. And they actually, we didn't talk about it, but they give you 30 days to do things rather than the standard 48, 72 hours, you know, the very brief time. Right. This well, has no, we did. Day. We did. It was it was part in there that you had 30 days to, to do this. Okay. I didn't didn't realize I had that in there, but there, it's much more lenient in terms of enforcement, but they can't allow it to stand that way. What's going to happen? And I know I offend some of my victim's advocate listeners. I'm sorry, but they will come <laughs> in and say, this is not fair. You know, we are suffering still the effects of what these heinous actions that these people have done. And it's not fair that we can't have the benefit of the protection because we don't get to know where these people live. We don't get to know where these people work. We can't protect our families. And they won't allow it to stay that way. And the pressure will mount on the legislature. And there will be a lone wolf that will say, well, we can't do that. There might be a Larry over there that will say we can't do that because it will run the risk of it being declared unconstitutional. They will ignore that and they'll say, well, you know what, it's presumed constitutional upon our enactment and they can challenge it and we'll see what the courts say. And that's the big risk of this. But it, it's relatively benign except for that final section where they, if they would take all those disabilities or restraints out, there would be nothing unconstitutional about this registry. They couldn't help themselves. They need to <laughs> go ahead and exempt them from all that stuff that we just discussed about uh, restrictions and have no disabilities or restraints. And I wish you could propose legislation that would repeal itself upon change. And I actually ask, and my, my uh, legislative expert says you cannot do that. But what I'd like to put in a proposal like this is, okay, we won't oppose it if you'll strike the disability restraints and you'll put a self-repealing provision in that if any attempt is made to re and, and change this and any amendments are enacted, it will cancel everything else about the bill. It will self-repeal. And I, I guarantee you wouldn't get a whole lot of people that would agree, but I would love that provision in there that'll self-repeal upon any changes. Uh, let me see if there's any comments in chat. So, um, a person who hasn't been around in a long time, Larry, you know that guy from Tennessee, he agrees with you, and I know that that's very comforting for you. This is just uh, to, to get their foot in the door. This will end up being the folks bringing right back on the regular registry and be subject to all the restrictions that all the other people think. That's what he's saying. And uh, a deputy says that this is just a sleepy, uh, slippery slope, scope creep is what I would call it. 
that's precisely what I believe to be the case. I don't think we have all that robust of an advocacy in Iowa. The legislature is overwhelmingly Republican. There's nothing the Democrat Party can do for you. So if you're inclined, uh, I looked at it, it's like 50 senators and like uh, uh, only 16 of those are, are, are members of the Democrat Party. And then the House side, it's like 100 and only like uh, a 30 something of them are members of the Democrat Party. So if you're going to be reaching out to people, the Democrat Party can't help you in Iowa. Uh, you're barking up the wrong tree. All right. Um, we are at uh, right around 55 minutes. Do you, do you want to? just jump out. I have something I would like to speak about just a, a quick for that podcast. Is there anything that you want to do before we get out of here? Not particularly, but uh, you, you did have a question or something, or were you going to play a clip of a, of a bonehead who called? Well, that's what, so I do. Do you want to do that? Sure. That'd be fine. Okay. Do you want to set it up? Of like, I mean, beyond just a bonehead? Well, it's my commentary about the legislative, our government system of self-governance, the type of danger that we're in. It would never have occurred to me not that many years ago that the level we have managed to go to would ever have been achieved. Folks, we resolve our differences in this country by the ballot box. We vote for people and we express our disagreement with them civilly. And we don't call them unpatriotic. We don't call them names. We work to defeat them in the next election. We run for office, but now it's gotten so ugly that in my day job, when the legislature is in session, I find it almost repugnant to answer the phone because a good significant percentage of the phone calls are ugly. They use vulgar language. They make threats. And they make veiled threats and they make direct threats. And this is one that just came in yesterday that came into the office and I didn't I didn't pick up the phone. And, and I generally like answering telephones because I'm a telephone person. But... <laughs> But you're, when you get to the ugliness that now we've sunk to, it's very disheartening to pick up a phone and have people say such cruel things. And also listen to how it ex escalates, because you sent this to me sometime during the week. And it starts out somewhat with a normal tone, but then the person like almost starts hyperventilating. So hyperventilating. All right, here's the clip. It's interesting to me. I'm curious if you guys are more... Uh, concerned about the fact that you're working for somebody that's helping steal elections for foreigners, globalists, or the fact that he's a sex pest, or the fact that these things seem to go hand in hand. You guys are essentially Hunter Biden. That's what you are. You're basically enabling both election theft and this sexual abuse. That's what you are. You're trash. You're traitors. You're committing fucking treason every day by overlooking things that you know are wrong. You're fucking liars. You're corrupt. You're helping steal the election. You have no fucking future. You have no future. You have no souls. You have no fucking future. Stolen elections have consequences. You. That's off the charts. I'm, I'm going to have to bleep that before it goes out, Larry. <laughs> I'll bleep it on YouTube. Yeah, but can, can you imagine that I would want to pick up a phone and deal with that? And you wonder why none of us want to pick up phones otherwise. You don't have to deal with that at your job, do you? N no, but I don't want to, like, I mean, you don't know that something's not going to escalate. I don't answer the phone for that reason. I don't want to talk to anybody. So, nobody, nobody calling me, unless I know who you are, is anybody I want to talk to. So, well, it's, it's a tragedy. If you don't agree with a person's politics, work to defeat them.
you can make donations, you can go into their district, you can put signs up, you can knock on doors for them, you can work to get them defeated. That's our system, folks. Our system is not to threaten people. Our system is not to question people's morality, their integrity, and all these things. And I'm very disappointed that I never thought I'd live long enough to see this, but I have lived long enough to see this, and it's very disheartening. That was, uh, he, he's, Sounds a little uh, a little peeved, Larry. Would you would you speculate that this person is even in your state, let alone in your actual district? Because I'm thinking that this is almost like a, a, a phone bank dialing all the senators and so forth, all the politicians and all the states. That's what it feels like to me, because there was no names given, not your name, not anyone you work for, not the state, nothing like that. Well, it was deliberately targeted. That was uh, that was targeted to this senator that I worked for. It was a call phone number coming from New Mexico, the southern part of the state, but from New Mexico. So it geo geolocates to New Mexico, but he did not leave a name. He certainly is probably not one of the constituents, but you just wouldn't do that. When uh, going back in history, when uh, when the Republicans were taking their shellacking in 1982, when the economy was flat on its back in the first two years of the Reagan administration, and they they lost like 70 seats that year. It's a large number. I may be off. But the first thing Tip O'Neill asked, he was the Speaker of the House and leader of the Democrat Party, he asked, how is Congressman Bob Michael doing in Illinois? Because Bob Michael was such a patriot, and you worked with Bob Michael, although you philosophically disagreed with Bob Michael. Uh, O'Neill and, and Michael did not see eye to eye on most things politically. But they were very cordial to one another, and they did not question each other's patriotism. And that I get tired of people questioning my patriotism. Patriotism is not by how big the flag is on your pickup truck. That does not make you a patriot. It really doesn't. Well, very good, sir. Um, I I just wanted to point out, uh, since we're we're going to head out of here, I assume we're starting to get over time. That there's an incredibly good podcast out there called Intelligent Squared. And they happen to have a debate that just came out on the third. So as we're recording this yesterday, and it is, does the PFR registry, does it do more harm than good is the title of it. And you can replace the words as you, you need to. And it is uh, done with Emily Horowitz. And I forget the, the goofball that she is debating with, but obviously she's in support of that. The registry does more harm than good. And her opponent in the debate is not. So anyway, very, 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 very good intelligence mumble no it's intelligence squared intelligence squared apparently i mumbled the words anything else sir before we go well not really but i'm i'm just impressed with this huge turnout tonight we've got a full house yeah, we do it's a very good turnout i thank you so very much people for coming and hanging out and uh, if you want to stick around if you're a patron and you want to hang out and shoot the kick the bobo shoot the sh then uh, feel free and we'll hang out for a little while. But otherwise, sir, find all the show notes over at registrymatters.co and I will bid you a farewell for the evening and I hope you have a fantastic weekend. Good night.